ona. So we go back to the Buddha's life. After achieving samadhi, the highest levels of samadhi within the three realms, finding that they were not bringing about any radical or irreversible transformation, I mean, he must have been quite brilliant. Because so many people, I mean, generations upon generations before him, were very happy campers. They got this high states of samadhi. They said, this is moksha. But um, he was very sharp and recognized there was, it was not a path. It was not a path. It was a nice excursion, sublime excursion, but not a path. And then those six years, six years really, what, what can one call it except for experimentation, research? That's what it was. You know? Trying everything all of the available technology for mind, mind over matter, mastering, and so forth and so on. And doing major damage to his body in the, in the, in the process. He really, he really harmed his body. Uh, at one point he said he went to touch his, his navel, and he touched his backbone. So really, his holiness, when he refers to that, is just he almost weeps for reverence of that incredible dedication. Even though it was, you know, obviously, as we say now retrospectively, out of balance, nevertheless, the, the intensity, the dedication, the self-sacrifice, really willing to sacrifice everything, including his health, his life itself, for the pursuit of liberation, was uh, quite extraordinary. But then finding, after those six years, which many of you found over the last five weeks, that your mind doesn't work very well. You, know? you want to do a simple task like, like with a dog, you know, sit. And it goes, <laughs> okay, roll over. Okay, stay. You know? I mean, your dog is better than your mind. And they're not nearly as smart. There's something really off about it. You can train your dog, but you can't train your mind. So he found, after he'd so severely damaged his body, weakened his body, uh, that his mind just couldn't work. And those wonderful states of samadhi that he had, he lost them. He lost them completely. And so, thanks to the intervention of a young woman, uh, then he restored his health, regained his balance, his vitality. And then, as you'll recall from a story I told weeks ago, it seems like ancient history, as he wondered, what now? Because all he'd done, I mean, in a way, one can imagine, I don't know what he actually spelled, how could I possibly know? But if it were me, I think I'd feel intense frustration. Is He's just spent six years to hell and back, and now he's got health like he had six years ago, and nothing else to show for it. Samadhi came and went, all the other stuff, now a bad memory. Health was terrible, now he's got it back. But caramba, he had, he had good health when he left the palace. So like, back to square one. I would feel a bit frustrated, or at least I'd be looking for something, something new. So he posed that question. Oh, welcome back. Welcome back, my dear Dharma brother. Good to see you. Sitting upright. So good. One of our members was little bit ill, and he's back. It makes me very happy. But that simple question, 
recalling back to his youth, recalling just spontaneously slipping into the first jhana, remembering that, the, the balance of it, the joy, the bliss, the sense of well-being, but also the mind being so malleable, you know, really, crucially, malleable. If he wanted to investigate, either on a coarse or subtle level, he could do it. The mind was supple, it was clear, single-pointed, and he just slipped into it, remember? And then he remembered this now at the age of 35, going back, who knows, maybe 20 years earlier, and, and posing that question to himself, boy. I mean, he would, re- he would recall also much more sublime states, abstracted states, transcendent states within samsara that he'd experienced shortly after leaving the palace. But he was going way back, he cut right through that, way back to that, just that first jhana, where you have all of the five jhana factors at your fingertips. But you don't, as you go higher into the jhanas, you don't have those, all of those five jhana factors, like coarse and subtle investigation. You, you can't do. The mind is too subtle. But then that, you, you remember, it's, it's good to remember. He remembered that first jhana, and then at the age of 35, the question arose in his mind, might that be the way to enlightenment? That be the way to liberation? And then just the, the echo came back, yes. Good intuition, you know. But he had to achieve it all over again. He had, to go, he, was, he had to go from scratch, because he damaged his body so much, his body could not support the samadhi he had achieved earlier. He lost it. So he was back, who knows, out of nine stages of shamatha, maybe back at two. Really, Gautama. You know, he had to achieve it all over again. You know? And he did, but it, and it wasn't all that easy. I read one account, he had to really work at it. And then, having achieved shamatha, then it was very quick work. Then it was very, very fast. What, like, who knows, days, weeks, but a very short time before he had that confidence of sitting down there beneath the Bodhi tree and having this resolve, I won't move until I've found what I'm seeking. And then, of course, he found it. Hmm. So this whole notion, though, I'm focusing on something very specific that's enormously relevant to all of us, whether here in Phuket or listening by podcast. And that is, he first restored his health. He didn't go directly from having total emaciation, depletion, loss of energy, his body almost totaled, and then while still having that, then, well, let's go achieve first shamatha, let's go achieve shamatha. Then then I'll achieve the Four Noble Truths and I'll be, you know. Actually, it was mundane stuff. He actually restored his health first. That was first. Proper diet, things like that. And then on he went, right? So... I doubt that any of us, I mean, I went through some austerities, but nothing like that. I don't think any of us have been through that kind of austerities. But we've been through another kind of austerity. All of us here, whether you're from Singapore, Australia, Brazil, America, Europe. It, the austerity we've been through is called modernity. You know? and, what it, and, and yeah, I'm not against modernity. I like my cell phone as much as other people like their cell It's a good tool. You know? and I, I like air conditioning. I'm really, I don't do well in really hot, humid climates. So I like, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I'm not against modernity. But one of the things that modernity, and it really is global, it's not East or West, one of the things that modernity did, that does to us, it fries our, fries our nervous system. If you live in, in any city, in any country nowadays, including Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, and so forth, Delhi, oh my goodness, and so forth, the pace of life, the intensity of it, the drivenness of it, the multitasking of it, the, the information coming in, everything. It's everywhere. I've been to cities of now all over the world. And they're pretty much the same. Ulaanbaatar is no slower pace than Chicago. Really. And the traffic is probably worse. And so, 
need to repair damage that's been done, all of us. And so among the, the Eastern sages that I trained with over the quite a few years, among the ones I knew personally, the one that I suspect, now it's a subjective evaluation, but I'll just tell you what I feel. My sense is among all of them, Tibetans and people trained in Burma, Thailand, Sri Lanka, India, my sense was that the person that I trained with who really had the clearest understanding of modern bodies, not just Western bodies, but modern bodies, bodies conditioned by modernity, was a teacher I trained with briefly, two and a half months, but quite intensely, because I was in his yoga ashram for five hours a day practicing yoga, and that was BKS Iyengar. And uh, brilliant, I mean, his worldwide renown was well-earned. He was utterly brilliant, incredible subtlety. So she understood the, understood the body, but of course he mastered all of the asanas that he taught, and some of them were incredibly formidable. Uh, but he taught people on all levels. I was, of course, a beginner. He taught me. He gave me some personal attention just because I had some strange things with my body, I guess. Um, but he made, and I'm, I'm repeating myself, but it may be worth, be worth repeating. He told me, and it wasn't any, anything special to me, he was just saying what he says, is that um, before you're really ready for meditation, you have to master the shavasana. Before you're ready for the meditation, you have to master shavasana. And Shavasana is not nap time with milk and cookies, right? Anybody can lie down like a corpse. Even corpses can. You know, it takes no skill. But can you lie down in the corpse position and be in a meditative state, be in a yogic posture? A yogic posture means that it's a total integration of mind-body. It's always meant that, right? Am I not right, Kim? It's always meant that. It's not go into this really cool posture and have your mind spinning around all over the place and then spacing out and getting dull. That's just a charade. It's an outer shell. Yoga has always been integrative from the beginning, middle, and end. All traditions. Otherwise, what are you doing? It's ridiculous. And so, Shavasana, he again, just the posture itself, he taught with quite precision. Uh, but, of course, can you remain in that Shavasana and be in a mind, in a mind state that is relaxed, still, that's clear, that's very present, fully present with your body, and deeply relaxed at the same time, and the breath just flowing unimpededly, unimpededly. I say that without going into the, the details of the actual posture itself, I would say that's doing the shavasana. You know, that it's a complete integration of body and mind, both in a deep state of profound relaxation, but both in a state of equipoise, neither one falling asleep. Right? So, anybody who knew BKS Iyengar, I knew him 34, 33, 34 years ago. Anybody who knew BKS Iyengar would say that the last word that would come to your mind when you looked at him, engaged him with him, would be uh, wimp. This, he was tough. He was really tough. He was like tough like my, my Kamba Lamas, They're really, they're good, they're, they're benevolent, they're compassionate, but they're tough. And boy, BKS Iyengar, he was tough, really tough. All, always motivated by helping people. I never saw anything grungy or selfish or just petty. I never saw that. Uh, but boy, when he dedicates himself to his students, know that he's not going to pull any punches, including slapping people and so forth. Uh, and so this emphasis on Shavasana is not kind of some California, California dreamer, you know, blah, blah, blah kind of thing. It's, it's, it's Iyengar. That's where I got it from. Iyengar. And he is brilliant. So, 
I just come back to that because I know people in various traditions, sometimes Tibetan people trained in Tibetan said, no, no, absolutely not. I know one teacher of Tibetan Buddhism, he thinks it's completely ridiculous, ridicules anybody that lies down in meditation. I hope he never gets sick, gets ill, or dies because he may have to re reassess that when the time comes. Uh, but people in Zen, I think they're, they're not very crazy about lying down in meditation. That's completely wimping out. That's when you just start beating people over the head multiple times, you know. And not over the head, over the shoulder. I know the soft part of the shoulder. I've heard that. But if they actually lay, if they actually lay down, they might get who knows, who knows, you know, being those Rinzai. I mean, the Soto people maybe not, but the Rinzai people look out. They're all samurai stock, right? I wouldn't be so sure. In any case, joking aside, joking aside. But Theravada too, not much. I mean, even though the Buddha taught right there, Buddha Gosa taught, the Arhat Upatisa taught, you know, the supine position, lying down is fine. Not much. Sitting, walking, sitting, walking, okay. Lying down, what are you doing? You know? So, but there it is. From the yoga tradition, where they have actually, frankly, generally speaking, much more sensitivity, much more awareness, much more care for the body than you find in Buddhism. That's the way it is. You know, Theravada, Mahayana, and so forth. Uh, they tend to be just be much more conscious of how important the body is. Hence all the asanas, the pranayama, the diet. And then, of course, Indian Ayurvedic medicine is completely integrated with all of that. So what I'm getting at here is that if, you've not, if you're not working on mastering the shavasana, I suggest you start. Now's a good time. We still have two and a half weeks. It's something that will serve you well. I'll just say that. Camille already knows that. Take it from an expert, okay? He's only 32 years old, you know? So 32, they're all 32-year-olds all are totally buff, strong, healthy, running marathons and so forth, right? Until you're not. And then suddenly the Shavasana might be very useful, right? So any age is an age that you can get sick or get injured, any age at all. One-year-old, 10, etc., etc. So I'd really encourage you, you know, take advantage of the opportunity to learn how to meditate in any posture, and that's a good, a good f literally fallback posture to, to master. And then standing, walking, sitting, and so on. So I've said it many times, but again, sometimes I've, I've, had, I've had people come to these retreats where in the eighth week, I remember somebody particularly, in the eighth week, Somebody said, you've been saying this all along, but only this week did I hear you. Only this week did I learn how to breathe. Oh, that doesn't you mean, oh, you mean actually breathe effortlessly. Is that what, oh, you mean effortlessly. Is that what you were saying? Oh, oh, I see, effortlessly. Uh, I didn't kind of understand that part. You know, can you breathe effortlessly, effortlessly, egolessly, no control? Relinquishment, giving it all away, receiving what comes in without taking it in. You know? So as we look at the practice of mindfulness of breathing in the Pali Canon, breathing in long, one notes I breathe in long, breathing out long, I note one notes I breathe out long, and then to short. What I really encourage as a suggestion is that transition from the, I'm going to say this is true, which means I could be Wrong, of course. I can be wrong on anything. But I've never seen this written any place. I've never received this instruction from any teacher, not Ananda Maitreya, not any of my other teachers. But here's my interpretation. So that's what it is. So one guy, 21st century, you think, this is my interpretation. 
And that is, my interpretation is that when you're doing this, that the Buddha taught so little. I mean, four, four lines, that's really skimpy. When he taught so much, he could, have, he could have given a book, you know, on mindfulness of breathing. He gave four lines. So they must be super compact, four lines. That's my sense of it, right? And so here's my interpretation. I've said it before, but I'm not going to say it really clearly and shortly, and then I may not repeat it again. And that is in this first phase. When you're just sitting down, you're lying down, then you may find, relatively speaking, that the in-breath is relatively long, the out-breath is relatively long, which means fairly normal. So maybe seven, five, six, seven breaths per, per minute. You know, ten, 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 ten seconds per full in-breath and out-breath, something like that, maybe a bit longer, a bit shorter, but that would be kind of an ordinary long breath, you know, that you might have seven, eight, nine, something like that, cycles per, per, per minute, yeah? No, ordinary, like if you're just sitting waiting, waiting for a bus, you know, in, in crowded, you know, everything going, your mind spinning, spinning, spinning. So that may be what it's like. And so that's what it's like when your system is basically agitated and your mind is agitated and the two are in sync, agitated prana system, agitated mind system, and they're both agitated. And then you give it all a rest. At least you're not, you're not stirring up the hornet's nest of your mind. You're not agitating it by further rumination, further grasping, hope, fear, desire, aversion, mental afflictions. You're finally giving it a rest. You're finally letting that wounded mind be cleansed so that it's not just continually getting infected by more mental afflictions, more rumination, and so forth. So you're finally giving it a chance to heal, at least for a few minutes. And however long it takes, it just depends on how, to put it really bluntly, it depends on how damaged your prana system is. That's what it, what it really is about. How much have you thrown your whole system out of kilter, out of balance, by a whole lifestyle, mental attitude, modernity, everything that you already know about so you don't need any explanation from me. What's the damage? And so you have long in-breath, long out-breath, but then on occasion you may have a really long out-breath and then a long pause. And then you may have some short breaths and maybe a long in-breath and a short out-breath and it may be the opposite. And then it may be short, 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 but then it goes long again. And so as that's happening and you're really relinquishing all control, and I would suggest this, my interpretation. Your body's working it out. The body is working out its kinks. If you put it into a posture where you're no way inhibiting the respiration, so if you're sitting upright and you're very relaxed, that's fine. Supine is really, really good. Everything wide open, diaphragm open, chest open, belly soft open. And so there's no impediment there, either way. Uh, but let it work itself out. And as I, said, I have said before, when you're in that phase where it's either long or it's fluctuating all over the place, as I've just said. Long out-breath, maybe a pause, maybe not, etc. And sometimes short, but then long again. During that phase, just let your overall overwhelming emphasis be on relaxation. Don't worry about stability. Don't get frustrated that your mind is blah, blah, blah. Just keep on releasing, releasing, releasing every out-breath. Just like if a mother who has a, ch a young baby, like a three-year-old, two-year-old, one-year-old like that, who for whatever reason just got really f freaked out, maybe some loud noise. So how about that? Just a loud noise. Maybe a car backfiring. And the little, little baby's freaking out. Why? You know what they get. They were like freaking. And the, mo the mama's there. I've seen it. I was, I'm sure I was that. So just imagine the mama just basically just holding and cooing and, and rocking and comforting and basically as long as it takes. 
it would be, imagine the mother saying, ah, screw it. (laughs) (laughs) Work it out. I'm tired. You just, it was just the car backfiring, crying out. Like, what's the problem? You know, the the mother wouldn't do that, right? They just, however long it takes until finally the baby sued. That's what mothers do. Otherwise, you know, human race would never have survived. So thank you, mama. So for, for, for as long as it takes. That's it, for as long as it takes. And in that same gentle, loving attitude, not being impatient, not asking yourself, am I progressing? Is this really worthwhile? Am I going to reach stage two yet? (laughs) Give it a rest. The mama's not asking the baby, have you reached stage two yet? (laughs) How can I go faster? Maybe that'll make it. Put it in a vibrator, you know, calm down, kid. Like that. No, it just, you just can't, one of those things you can't rush. Right? You can't rush to get the baby to calm down. Not in any civilized way, anyway. I've heard whiskey has been tried on occasion. <laughs> it doesn't seem to me the optimal approach. So just be with that. And watch your body heal. Attend to it gently. Keep on releasing with every out-breath. And then at some point, and I'm, this is an interpretation, because again, it, there's not much said there. Breathing in short, one knows it's short. Breathing out short, I mean, that's, that's what he said. But here's an interpretation, and that is on that course level, just like we have course investigation and subtle analysis, on the course level, establishing, reestablishing balance, some composure, some equilibrium, Right? And everything's settling down because, after all, you're not exerting yourself physically or mentally. This is not exactly heavy lifting, just watching the breath go in and out and merely noting. I mean, that's your only job description. Is it short or long? This is not calculus. You know, it's not trying to even balance your checkbook. It's just like, long, short. I think I can handle that. You know, don't have to check your IQ. You're probably up to it. And so, after some time, you may have passed through that initial, as a tiny bit of a surfer a long, long time ago, the initial break. We're just getting beaten up. If you ever try to, you know, on a board, swim out through even five-foot waves, you really get beaten up on the way out, let alone bigger. You know it. When that wave hit, hits you, you know it. It's only five foot. That's a lot of water there. And so you've gone through out, out, through, out beyond the initial break. If you can get to the point where... All those fluctuations, the long breath, and all the variations, they kind of just settle down. They settle down, and your breathing goes into this shallow breathing. I'll just put it that way. The Buddha said short, short, shallow, shallow, short. But it's rhythmic, and it stays, it persists, it continues on. You've come to kind of something more, well, it's sinusoidal. It's just cruising along, and it's shallow, but it's nothing agitated about it. It's not stressful. It doesn't, tie, wire, it doesn't wire you or tighten you up. It's just kind of flowing, but re- fairly rapidly. You know, it's a short breath, so that means it's rapid, relatively rapid. Uh, and until then, I'd really, until that happens, I would suggest you linger there, mindfulness of breathing. Because for the soothing, healing, calming, balancing effect on your prana system, Again, I'm just speaking from a limited perspective. This is the best thing I've ever found. Better than pranayama. I've done it. No expert, but I have done it. India style, Tibet style. 
I just find the body has its own natural pranayama. And the body knows exactly what you need from moment to moment. From cycle to cycle, the body knows exactly what it needs. No method that you can learn from outside will tell you after three minutes and 20 seconds, do this breath. Three minutes and 30 seconds, do this breath. I mean, nobody's giving you that kind of instruction. And if they did, it would be only good for one person. Because the person next to you is going to have a different array, different configuration. Right? So that's what I would suggest. And that is don't disengage from the mindfulness of breathing too quickly. Work through that initial break. You know, the turbulence, the ups and downs, and so forth and so on. And just with infinite patience, continue releasing, releasing, and releasing. And try to do, try to undo the impact of modernity on your body. You know, we, um, we have to start in a remedial course. We're not Indian peasants living 1,500 years ago or Tibetan nomads living 100 years ago or anybody else living in a really traditional, low, slow-paced, natural way of life that characterized humans, human species for almost all of the last 200,000 years. The experiment we've done has been only for, what, 100, 150 years, something like that. You know, it's a very weird, weird, and frankly, if somebody were doing it to us, I'd say cruel, but nobody's doing it to us. Yeah, what are you going to point to? Your dad or Obama or I mean there's nobody to point to. Not nobody. It it happened, you know. But there it is, it did happen. And this is why so many people are so stressed out and ADHD is basically endemic. Um, it's not because our genes are bad or our parents are rotten. It's in the air we breathe. It's a zeitgeist, if you like. And so I think we need to take that very seriously. And we who are raised in modernity have the inside scoop. Tibetans who are raised in Tibet, like most of my teachers, they know about this from the outside. I mean, they may be clairvoyant, which they know a lot, but if they don't have clairvoyance... I mean, like when this wonderful Kempo, when I told him that you know, I really focus on my faults, he couldn't, it just didn't connect. You know, he said, no, that's not true. People don't do that. You know, normal people like us, we don't do that. And, you know, if I continue the conversation, I said, yeah, but abnormal people like me, we do this all the time, you know. And then he would have a steep learning curve to see how, what a case he'd taken on <laughs> in that monastery. So there's that. So for the session, we're about to begin then. Um, I'll give a little bit of instruction, very little. Basically, I've already given it for, for the first half. What I'd like to recommend as your chef for this meal is for the first half, mindfulness of breathing, big emphasis, relaxation. And see, see whether it happens. Don't try to force it. That's just one thing that you can't, it doesn't work that way. But see if it happens over the course of roughly 12 minutes, that it's first long, variable, and so forth, and then after some time, as you really settle down, and it's from the inside out, this core sense of release, of relaxation, sense of ease, of body, speech, and mind. See, just see. Whether you do slip into, without forcing it or trying to regulate it, make it happen, just see whether it naturally happens, that you slip into a shallower, softer, fine, fine breathing, a subtle breathing that just undulates. See whether that happens. If so, then that's good. That's what the Buddha was speaking of. And then, of course, from that point, then you, you gently slip over to a second emphasis of relaxation and stability but not stability at the cost of relaxation, right? Very familiar by now. 
So that'll be the first 12 minutes. Yeah? And the second one, this is going to be balancing earth and wind. So the second half will be then shifting right over to taking the mind as the path. And I'll give instruction in that that will be exactly parallel to and, and prime you for the next section of the text, which is now moving more dynamically into the field of dream yoga, of emanation and transformation. So we'll do something comparable to that in the waking state, in taking the mind as a path. Okay? So this is going to be a very full 24 minutes. So get cracking and find a comfortable position. <coughs> Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural state. And continue in the practice of mindfulness of breathing, as already explained.
let your eyes be at least partially open, your gaze vacantly resting in the space in front of you. You may breathe through the nostrils or the mouth, whichever gives you the greatest sense of ease, of looseness. single-pointedly direct your attention to the space of the mind and to whatever arises within that domain. Sustaining the flow of your awareness without distraction and without grasping. Now, what this means is to be lucid with respect to your mind, recognizing mental events as mental events, rather than being carried away and lost as you think you're attending to the reference of the thoughts, as if you're having a non-lucid dream. Sustain the stillness of your awareness in the movements of thoughts and recognize each mental event for what it is. Remain lucid without trying to modify or control anything that arises in the domain of the mind. Now deliberately generate a thought. Do so premeditatively, slowly, almost ponderously. A sentence of any choice, any one of your choice, mentally articulating it syllable by syllable. But as you allow this thought to arise, see if you can sustain the stillness of your awareness as the syllables of the sentence rise and pass and then dissolve away into the space of the mind. Generate another thought, not an interesting one, not one that will carry you off to the referent of the thought. 
Simply generate the thought and observe it, syllable by syllable, arising in the space of your mind. Now generate that thought again, but this time transform it. Change it in some way. Modify the sentence. bring to mind a mental image. Choose a type of fruit. Bring it to mind as vividly as you can, as large or small as you wish. Now make it much larger. Now miniaturize it. And now multiply it as many times as you like, five, ten times, whatever you like. Make a lot of them. Now that gather them all back into just one, the same piece of fruit with which you began. Now change it into another kind of fruit. Transform that into a vegetable. And transform that into an animal of any kind you like. Transform that into a human being. And now transform that human being into one very attractive for whom desire arouses, arises, 
Imagine a very attractive, desirable human being. Focus on the desirable qualities and allow, enable desire to arise and observe it. Now transform that human being into a very negative one, unappealing, unattractive, quite repellent, so that aversion arises. And observe the aversion that arises while letting your awareness remain still. Observing the play of the mind. further on the person's negative qualities, real or imagined, really bad qualities. And see if you can arouse a sense of anger, disgust, resentment, contempt. And observe that emotion arising as your awareness remains still. Now finally transform that person into someone who is very pleasing, attractive, pleasant, delightful, smiling countenance, attractive. And observe the pleasure arising from the stillness of your awareness. Now simply relax, rest, let your awareness remain in its own nature.
It's kind of nice to be lucid, isn't it? Like hopping in your car and driving around, going fast, going, doing the curves, going straight, slowing down, watching the scenery. It's kind of nice having a car, isn't it? Step on the, step on the accelerator, it goes faster, the brake, it goes slower. Turn left, it goes left. Isn't that kind of fun? Compared to being in the back seat <laughs> and the car is a drunk. Completely stoned <laughs> and really likes driving fast. <laughs> Welcome to the difference in the waking state between having lucidity and not having lucidity. Have you ever, ever been tortured by your mind while you're awake? You're in the back seat, somebody else is in the front seat. Certainly not you, otherwise, you wouldn't be doing that. That's called non lucidity called rumination, it's called wandering mind. That's why we practice shamatha, to actually get in the driver's seat so you can enjoy having a mind and not be tortured by it and terrified by it. So welcome to the world of emanation and transformation. That's what we're just doing, right? We are emanating thoughts, images, from a pumpkin to a strawberry to who knows what your fruits were. So there we are. And we go now to Dream Yoga, doing the same thing. Presumably, there was no suffering in all of that. You were never tortured, never beaten up, never mugged, never dragged behind your mind. You're playing with it because you have decided what to do with your mind and you do it, right? And none of those images, I think, tortured you, harmed you. If they did, you just make them go away, right? So here we move on, page 155. Training in Dream Emanation and Transformation. You know what's coming. It's very straightforward. doesn't need a whole lot of commentary. But it does begin with the phrase, well, apprehending the dream state. In other words, it starts with lucidity. right? So one way or another. So to get to that point, then by all means to make liberal use of the wonderful techniques from Stephen Leberge, Paul Tolai, and, and others working in this field of research that help people who've never had a lucid dream have them, or those who've had only a few have a lot more. They're really good techniques by very well-intentioned people who are very clever and genius and have come up with a lot of good techniques. But then now once you become lucid, I'm going to say it just once again because I've said it many before, many times before. Once you become lucid, just now remember your shamatha. Remember to be relaxed so that you don't just wake yourself up. Right? Remember to be relaxed, at ease. And then remember to maintain the continuity of your dream. Keep it going. If it starts to fade, then reinvigorate it by rubbing your body. This is from modern lucid dreaming techniques. Rubbing your body, that will reinstantiate you, almost like reifying you into the dream, except for you know you're dreaming. But you can rub yourself, you can spin around in a circle with your eyes open. But whatever do, engage with the dream, and that will keep the dream going, so it doesn't just fade out and have you slip back into the substrate. So maintain the continuity of the dream, keep it going, keep it going. You know, like foot on the accelerator, keep it going, don't let it stall. But then also, don't get lost in the dream, like that poor prince who got, you know, so, was so enjoying the illusions that he completely lost in it and then lost his own identity, became a wandering beggar. Don't slip back into non-lucidity. Maintain the flow of cognizance. And then, when have you, if you have that ongoing flow of relaxation and stability, also called continuity, then you can start attending more closely, bringing higher resolution, greater clarity, greater brightness, and so forth to the dream, and then you're ready for emanation and transformation. Okay? 
So that was all commentary on while apprehending the dream state. Consider, since this is now a dream body, it can be transformed in any way. Okay, well, there you are. Just as you just did, well, you can you, anyway. The only limits are that of your imagination. So whatever arises in the dream, be they demonic apparitions, so the stuff of your nightmares, monkeys, people, dogs, and so on, meditatively transform them into your, well, okay, now we're going into dream yoga. This is no longer lucid dreaming. Into your yidam. Into your yidam. Tara, Padmasambhava, Avalokiteshvara, whoever it may be. Trans- let's, you know, just get it going in gear in Dharma immediately. You're starting to practice pure vision. Pure vision. Pure vision in state of regeneration is you're viewing all the sentient beings around you as manifestations of, of nimanakaya, all forms as nimanakaya. So the forms of everybody around you, you see all the men as, as viras, as enlightened male manifestations, all the females as dakinis, female manifestations of enlightened beings. So you're practicing by the power of imagination, having realized emptiness, or at least some insight into that, that you're developing this pure vision all the way through. You go off to the cafeteria, and it's not just, you know, grub. It's the food of the gods. You know, it's food for, for dakinis and viras. So you imagine you're, you're eating ambrosial nectar and food and so forth, and you, know, and you, are, you as the eater are your own yidam. Right? But transform everything. Pure vision. We'll do it in the dream, but it will be a lot more fun, a lot more vivid, because you're already in deep samadhi. Why? Because you're dreaming. Because all of the awareness that would otherwise be flowing out to the five physical senses isn't, which means whatever you imagine is going to be probably really good and a lot better than anything you can imagine during the daytime when your awareness is so diffuse. So this is what he's saying. He's going right right into core, core Dharma practice. This is why this practice is embedded in Vajrayana practice. You can do dream yoga in a Sutrayana context, but then you're not going to be doing the pure vision, the divine pride, and all of that. You can still do it, but you do it somewhat modified. But this, we're already embedded in Vajrayana, embedded in Dzogchen, so why not? So... Transform everything into manifestations of Tata, Manjushri, whatever you like. Practice multiplying them by emanation and changing them into anything you like. That is the fifth session. All right? So you're really you're, you're, you're deepening your insight. If you're a relative novice to lucid dreaming, dream yoga, you're deepening insight through practice, through active engagement, deepening your insight into the emptiness of all that appears. If you can transform a little terrier or a poodle into an emanation of Tara, well, that would show that it was not inherently a poodle. That's a pretty strong evidence, you know, uh, and for everything else as well. So that's it, in essence, right there. Um, and of course, you can do a lot more. I mean, you can, and you should, walk through walls, walk on water, breathe out of water, and so forth and so on. Really expand, you know, unfold your wings, take flight, and really start exploring this world. But he gave quintessential instructions right there. That's the fifth session. So now what's the sixth session? Moving right on. While apprehending the dream state. In other words, again, maintain that continuity of relaxation, stability, and vividness by bringing forth a powerful yearning to go to Abhirati in the east or the pure realm of Orgyan, that is Padmasambhava's own pure realm in the west. You can go there and request Dharma. I mean, it's just the power of your imagination, but if you've already been doing that, you recall that teaching gave, given weeks ago, and remember, like the arrow shot by a strong archer, and the central, the central Buddha field, the Akanishta, 
Hakanishta, of Samadabhadra or Vairochana, and then all the others, and going out and going and visiting each one. You remember, circumambulating, making offerings, and so forth and so on. If you've done that a number of times in the waking state as your poor practice, your backup plan, the backup plan is in case you die tonight. You know? I mean, it would be really nice if you don't. But if you do, it'd be good to have a backup plan in case you have other plans. You know, plans other than dying. If that doesn't work out, then plan B is practice POA, right? It's really good to have a backup plan and not just, oh, gosh, what do I do now? Uh, you know, we should be, be able to do better than that, right? Because death comes unexpectedly, sometimes rather expectedly, but very often. Never saw it coming. And then people, when they see young, young, young man, young woman dying, they said, I can't believe it, I can't believe it, I must be dreaming, can't be. They were so healthy just yesterday. They're always surprised. It's amazing, except for really seasoned Buddhists and other people who actually are t paying attention. So surprised. <gasps> How could it be? It happens. It's always been happening. It's happened for as long as sentient beings have been alive. So, so there's a nice option. He's moving very quickly here. We went immediately into pure vision in the first paragraph, and now he's going right to, well, why not? This is preparation, of course, for the bardo. And if you can do this in the dream, then you are making the perfect preparation for doing exactly the same thing in the bardo. And there is no way to estimate the value of that. If you consider how many lifetimes you've had thus far, and most likely have never been to a pure land, to be able to do something like this and gain entry, you, that's another way of achieving path, you know get to a pure land. You, should not, you will not come back unchanged. If you get to a pure land, Sukhavati or what have you, that's the other way to get to path. It'd be really nice to, I think enormously important, to discover a path to be a trailblazer, open up, make clear, make evident, here's the path in this lifetime. This world desperately needs it. But we don't know when we're going to die. And so if you don't reach the path in this lifetime, well, the bardo's a really good opportunity but you'll be able to make use of it if and only if you've been preparing for it. So, yeah, you can, you, you know, you can simply be, if you're a very benevolent person, like Genlam Rimba. And I asked him, you know, after he'd been meditating for 30 years or so in, in solitude, full-time, and I asked him, what, what are your plans for the future life? He said, well, I'm just going to come back wherever I can be of greatest benefit. He made no reference to Pure Land at all. And there he is. He's about 10 years old now, studying down at Sera. Back to work, you know, as a monk. So he came back. He came back. Better man than I. I don't want to come back. Not to this world. Not soon. You might know that I have a few rough edges when it comes to modernity and scientific materialism and so forth. To have to do this all over again? Are you kidding me? Uh, once was enough. For some of you, once was way too much. <laughs> so if you can visualize a pure land now, this would be really, really, really good. That means, you know, when you're still awake, learn about it, visualize it, do a bit of practice so that you can become lucid. You can say, okay, now what was it that I did before I went to sleep? Oh yeah, this. You don't have to be a superb visualizer, but one thing is guaranteed, you'll be doing better in the dream than you did in the waking state. That'll be nice, because everything's more vivid for the obvious reasons. Now, to subdue demonic apparitions and so forth, so if really yucky stuff comes up, as if you're going through a really rotten bardo, which can happen, right? All kinds of stuff happens in the bardo. 
Some of it can be really, really rotten, like a really, really bad nightmare. Well, you might want to prepare. Maybe some nightmare stuff will come in your bardo. Very troubling, very frightening, scary, spooky, and yet totally devoid of inherent nature. So should that happen, practice emanating yourself as a Garuda, great, you know, great mythic bird, or Hayagriva, some wrathful, some wrathful manifestation, or the like, and transform them in any way you wish. So, overpower. Overpower. This is why, while it's still you know, alive and all of that, you, it's not such a bad idea in traditional Tibetan Buddhist practice to also be doing some Dharma protector practice or some wrathful deity practice, Mahakala, Ayagriva, what have you, Vajrapani. Um, because sometimes that's the most effective way of dealing with the upheavals that come up. There's a story from Milarepa that he was out after he had been through all his training with Marpa. He was up in the cave. I think it was fairly early on when he was up in solitude. Uh, Marpa just basically gave him the training and said, okay, now scoot. You're on your own. Now do it. Do it. And he was ready. He didn't have to have, be handheld. Marpa says, okay, now go. Do it. And so Marpa and Milarepa was up there, again, fairly early in his training, I believe, and um, had these demons coming. Demons coming. You know. And I don't remember the story, it's like 30 years since I've heard it, but basically the gist I won't get wrong. And so these really malevolent, threatening, demonic apparitions are coming. And so, um, so he goes and meditates, bodhicitta, oh, may you be a cheap enlightenment. They're still going, like, nice, nice try. And then he went into, uh, ah, empty of inherent nature, devoid of intrinsic existence. And they're still going, <laughs> Even if things are devoid of inherent distance, they can still punch you in the jaw. A guy holding a gun at you. It's a non-inherent, non-inherently existent gun. He can still shoot you. <laughs> you know? The bullet will still, in a conventional reality, strike you, and it won't feel good. So he tried bodhicitta. They're still there, just as malevolent, as menacing, as threatening as ever. He went into meditation and emptiness. And they didn't, still had no impact. So... Then he just manifested himself as a wrathful deity and he scared the crap out of him. Because he was bigger, you know? And, then he, and that, that did it. It said of Yamantaka, for example, one of the wrathful manifestation of, a wrathful manifestation of, of uh, Majushri, if you look at him, he, he, he doesn't look like he's very happy. You know, all the flame and the fangs and, and all, all the things he's holding in his hands are not lotuses and rosaries and, you know, it's like just a whole, it's like Bruce Willis, you know, <laughs> or Stephen Zalone, one of the really, really violent ones, you know, when they open the cabinet and you just like, wow, how many kind of machine guns do you need, you know, well, this is Yamantaka, when it's like every single thing has some kind of, I wouldn't like to bump into that in the dark, you know, really like full arsenal, you know, and it's said that, you know, you look at the tanka, it looks pretty, pretty terrifying. I mean, it's terrifying enough to scare the crap out of Yama, the lord of death. I mean, it's got to be pretty heavy duty for that. But I remember Gishin Taike telling us, you know, it looked pretty wrathful. He said, the real thing, way more wrathful than that. <laughs> you can't imagine how wrathful. And that's what you generate yourself as. So whatever's coming up, you're bigger and meaner. <laughs> And just scare the crap out of them. Terrify them. They're gone. 
So that's the other way of doing it. And that's what he's talking about here. Really crappy stuff comes up? Good. Be bigger, meaner, fiercer, more hostile. They're not sentient beings. They're just empty apparitions. So no harm done. So, in addition, practice condensing many things into one, multiplying one into many. That is the succession. So that should keep you busy for a while. That's the succession. Then we'll move right on. Seeing through the dream. Oh yeah, this is good. Apprehend the dream state. And go to the bank of a great river. Now, for us living in modernity, like from California and so forth, bank of a big river, we're just thinking, where's my canoe? You know, or, you know, rivers, it's recreation. I guess water skis, right? Water skis, canoe, kayaking, swimming, cool. Uh, if you're living in Tibet, the river is about five degrees, and Tibetans don't know how to swim. Virtually enough, they don't know how to swim. Why on earth would you want to swim in that? It's freezing. And so they look at rivers, and it's a river of death. That's a place to die. They don't know how to swim. And even if you're a good swimmer, if it's five degrees, how long do you think you can swim, especially in a fast current? And these are mountains, after all. It's not the, you know, the lower Mississippi, which I wouldn't want to swim in either, frankly. So when I went to Tibet, uh, one of the times, I've been there a number of times, on the way from Plaza to, um, to Shigate, the, the road follows Big River. And uh, we were in four-wheel drives, the good old land cruisers. And we stopped for a little break, and we looked, looked down into the river, found corpses, human corpses, the two of them. And for people who, poor people, whose family can't afford, because it costs something to ask somebody to come and take the body and chop it all up, and, you know, it's a lot of preparation to make the sky burial. And poor people just don't have the money for that. And if you're in Tibet living at 12,000 feet, that's, that's valuable firewood to try to cremate them. And it can take a lot of work. I mean, this is not exactly dry tinder, you know, a fresh dead corpse. It can take a lot of wood to burn that up and really get rid of it. And they have better ways of using their wood, like cooking dinner. So wood was scarce, and they don't have enough money for sky burial. And so, poor people, water burial. Just throw them in the river, send them to China. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's what they're doing. <laughs> Hello, China. Here comes another one. Down the chute. So rivers were a place of death. Not for fun, not for water skiing, anything like that. Place of death. And so what he's getting at is a big river. If somebody shoves you in a river in Tibet, like 100 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000, that's kind of like a death sentence. You know? And so what I think he's getting at is your worst nightmare. Freezing cold water, rapid current, going down, and you can't swim. How much fun do you think that's going to be? You know? So he's getting at a deeper point here, and a lot of you have encountered this in your daytime practice. They're called upheavals. They're called nyam. And I've heard so many times, you know, this is the eighth of these eight-week repeats that I've led here. It happens so, it's, it's so predictable. I heard one again just today, again, and I was not surprised. Person describing having a very good session, going to very deep state, very still, very deep, really going into 
having some, some little experience of the substrate. And then coming out all hell breaking loose. Emotions coming up and heaviness and vertigo and somatic experiences, psychological experiences, and going on for hours and hours and hours afterwards from a really good session. And authentic practice. The person had, there was nothing to correct. You weren't pushing too hard, you weren't being sluggish, you weren't being dopey, you know you were doing it exactly right. And you had a really good session. And then that's when the, you know, the toilet flushes in reverse. <laughs> Don't be surprised. Whatever's there is going to come out. And the deeper you go, the deeper the stuff. That's just the way it is. And if you don't want it, then stop practicing shamatha. And just be a little water skater, you know, a little a skim, a skimmer. Like one of those little, you know, little insects that just go on the surface of the water and never go into it. Just let your life flip by and never know it happened. You know? uh, or just let life clobber you with stuff that happens anyway and be totally unprepared every single time and then die bewildered. That's a possibility. Or you can actually, you know, invite it in and see what's there and actually process it and become sane. That's a, that's a third option. And that's what this is about. But the point is very simple. And that is if you're doing a lot of shamatha practice of any kind, but the one that's most in your face is taking the mind as a path. Because as you're going deeper and deeper, your eyes, are, your eyes, kind of metaphorically, but somewhat literally, are wide open. And you're seeing, you're right there looking right at the domain of the mind where all that creepy, crawly stuff is going to come up. All the emotions, the imagery, the desires, the memories, the fantasies, the living daytime nightmares. That's exactly what you're attending to. You know. So you're going to get it right in the teeth. And you need to be prepared. You need to know, need to know what to do when that happens. And it's because you're dredging your psyche don't want to dredge your psyche, then fine, live on the surface. It's your option, it's a free, your free choice. But now the same thing's happening. You go, into lucid, you go into lucid dreaming, you start having lucid dreams. What are you doing? You're taking the mind as a path during the nighttime. You're doing exactly the same thing. And do it repeatedly. You know? Get good at it. And so in other words, you're practicing taking the mind as a path repeatedly while you're sleeping. Oh, but there's a difference. You're in samadhi. Right? Everything's more intense because, again, the same reason you've heard it so many times, your awareness is not being diffused out over six fields. It's all in one. So whatever's coming up now, it's got the reality of pretty much waking state. Uh, and if it's a nightmare, oh, it's a real nightmare. Very vivid. Very, very vivid. Really terrifying. And so whatever your worst nightmare is, if you can try to imagine, what would you most like not to encounter in a dream? What would be the last thing on your list that you would like to have to happen? That's going to happen. That's going to, be ha that's going to happen. If you can think of something worse, well, then that'll happen too. That's your psyche. That's what's getting dredged. You need to get all the way down to the substrate consciousness beyond all that, and you get through it by going through it and not just taking a detour and saying, no, thank you, I just want to go to the end. You know, one way or another, even if you're practicing awareness of awareness. It may not get you while you're on the cushion. It'll wait until you're off the cushion. <laughs> when you're thinking of other things, then wham, you get your big yum when you're off the cushion, when you didn't see it coming. So what do you do with the nightmares? What do you do with the nightmares? Really intense now, you're, you're getting lucid nightmares, the worst kind. 
what do you do now? Because it's going to come up. That's part of the practice. It should come up. It's not an accident. It's not on a bad day. It's what happens when the practice is going really, really well. It doesn't happen much when you're not having lucid dreams or not having dreams or when your meditation is really superficial, shallow, and just basically having a chattering mind all the time. You're not going to have deep, deep nyam, just a lot of the ordinary haze. It's when the practice goes well that you get the signs of progress. Padmasambhava calls these. So, consider in the dream state, and, and so, apprehend the dream state and go to the bank of a great river. Consider, since I'm a mental body in a dream, there's nothing for the river to carry away. In other words, it's kind of like in a dream. I mean, for us, going to a river is like, how sweet, you know, let's go water skiing. For them, that's death, right? So for us, if we put this in the 21st century, okay, um, go to Syria and check out, find out where the nearest encampment of the ISIS is. And say, hi, I am a, a Buddhist. Can you give me some directions? I'm looking for Bodhgaya. See how that works out. I mean, go to the most dangerous place you can imagine. Imagine going there. That would be pretty dangerous, I think. And so, go to a dangerous place. But then instead of, if they pull their guns out, or you see that big river there, that's the river of death, instead of backing up slowly, what do you do? By jumping into the river, you'll be carried away by a current of bliss and emptiness. So not drowning, not freezing, totally releasing into it. Well, you know this is exactly the analog of the woman who saw the man menacingly coming towards her with a knife in her lucid dream. Instead of flying away, instead of transforming into a cocker spaniel or anything else innocent and, and harmless, instead she jumped into the river, and that is she took his hand with a knife and plunged it into her abdomen, right? And there was no pain. There was no pain. And so this is rather deep into dream yoga practice, where you know you can transform. You can transform the river into a desert, if you like, transform it into a, a worm, anything you like. I mean, it's your dream, right? But instead of transforming it, you actually just jump right into it. And not, again, like a Westerner jumping into a stream for, for a river for, a, for fun. So, or anything dangerous. Go into a, a, how about going to Florida? Go to Florida, where there's lots of, alligators. In fact, you see them and then jump into the river where the alligators are. That's one of my favorite ones in terms of my nightmare. A five-meter-long alligator. And I'm in the water, but suddenly I am totally slow motion. And the alligator isn't. <laughs> that one works for me. And I'm seeing his eyes just above the surface of the water. thinking, am I ready to just roll over and say, meal time, or am I afraid? So that's your practice. At first, because of the, of the clinging of self-grasping, you won't dare. You won't dare jump into the alligator-infested swamp. You won't dare to come towards the person who wants to stab you, and so on. You won't dare, but that won't happen once, you get, once you've grown accustomed to it. So it's, again, familiarity. Just keeping doing it, doing it, doing it, until with your realization of emptiness, number one, you're fearless, totally fearless, 
in which case you know as exactly as Ledap Lingba said, when you become very adept at settling the mind in its natural state, you have a non-conceptual certainty that whatever regards, whatever arises in the mind, whether, whether or not thoughts persist, nothing can harm your mind. That's what he said. And that's directly from settling the mind in its natural state. Whatever comes up, alligators, a swiftly running fat, cold river, a person with a, an Uzi, whatever it is, if you're settling the mind in its natural state and these images are coming up, you know not, none of this is going to harm you. Right? And likewise, if you have that same lucidity in the dream, then you know nothing can harm you, so therefore there's no reason to change anything for your sake, no reason to run away or transform. You've grown accustomed to it. So he says, similarly, by see, seeing all such things as fire, like a raging bonfire, or a forest fire, precipices, imagine how frightened you feel you've been right, right next to a precipice, and you're looking, you're looking over like that, and you're looking behind you to make sure nobody's there. They could push you like that. How frightening that is. Whoa, there's death right there. I could take one step and I'd be dead. See the self-grasping that comes up. Not in real life. You know, be safe. Be safe. But in the dream, you can try it. So fire, precipices, carnivorous animals, alligators, pythons. Just south of here, I was, a couple of years ago, I was at Klaus's home and met with one fellow who was a naturalist. And he said they had a python down there, I think in Malaysia, that was 10 meters long. Python 10 meters long. And they finally, and, but they found in the police stations there that the policemen kept on disappearing, the night, the, the night watchmen. They, one, one after another, disappeared. And they finally caught this python. They killed it, opened it up, and they didn't find any policemen. They found their helmets. So I heard about pythons when I was a kid. I remember the pastor in our church, Baptist church. I don't know why, what, what the context was. But the pastor, and I was like 10, and the pastor gave this image of a python wrapping himself around you and squeezing all the air out of you and then just squeezing you to death. I don't quite know what that had to do with the message of Jesus, but it left a very strong impression. <laughs> and I, I knew I didn't want that. That really creeped me out. <laughs> Not enough to keep and continue going to church. <laughs> but it did creep me out. <laughs> so, carnivorous animals, 10-foot-long pythons, they're car carnivorous. So, by seeing through all such things as fire, precipices, carnivorous animals, all feels, fears will arise as samadhi. They'll be transmuted into samadhi. You'll be free. The critical point for all of that is training in daytime appearances. So we're back to that. Whether or not you're having lucid dreams or lots of them or few of them or none of them, daytime appearances, daytime dream you can do. So the critical point for all of that is training in daytime appearances and the illusory body and powerfully anticipating the dream state. That you can do. When on the verge of sleep, it is important that you direct your attention to whatever you are apprehending at your throat, be it your, your lama, your yidam, a seed syllable, or a bindu, just a little, little orb of light, whatever it is, focus there on the throat chakra. I've already explained why. And it is crucial 
that this, is, this not be interrupted by latent predispositions, and that is the seventh session. Latent predispositions basically just means wandering mind, blah, blah, blah of the mind. Just letting the same old grunge come up, then it diffuses everything, just kind of throws everything into entropy instead of falling to sleep with your awareness kind of gently collected there at the throat chakra, drawing the pranas to the throat so that you have dreams, have lucid ones, many of them, and that they are lucid. So that's it. That's emanation and transformation. And you can see, really, it's so obvious how enormously relevant that is to the bardo. Become lucid, master that. Uh, then there's really, you know, do it repeatedly. And then there's no reason why, if you just remember that, when you're in this dreamlike bardo, you should be able to do the same thing. And the benefits of that, I would say, infinitely surpass the enjoyment of you know, just ordinary lucid dreams, and oh, I can walk through water, look, I can walk through walls, isn't this fantastic, I can have dream sex, blah, blah, blah. You know, infinitely surpasses that. Uh, because that actually could change the destiny of all future rebirths. That would be, that's why they practice dream yoga. So that's that. So good. Enjoy your evening, sweet dreams. May you have many dreams, clear dreams, virtuous dreams, and may they be lucid.